what a day. 25 years, 40 years, 160 plus years. Make sure if you haven't had the opportunity yet, you spend some time walking in the hallway by the bathrooms as there is some history and some milestones recorded there to fill you in on a few more details of that history. What's fascinating is every time you do a celebration, you learn some new things. And it was kind of interesting this past week, some of the great similarities that we see in Advent's history and in Redeemer's history as God has been at work bringing us together. One of the things I learned this past week is that one of the things we had in common that I didn't realize is we both had church names at one point in our history that other people found kind of confusing. So the first name of Redeemer had the word covenant in it. And that's a great biblical word. However, there is a covenant denomination. And Redeemer was not a part of that denomination. And so it raised kind of concerns and challenges over the years. And as we were having a conversation at our Tuesday text time this past week, Jill had mentioned that when she and her husband moved into this area on the other side of the cornfield out back, they realized that there was a church here, but they just assumed it was a Seventh-day Adventist church. And I can tell you how many of those phone calls I would answer, and I got to the point of just saying, you know, just to kind of read people out, they'd say, so, so what does Advent mean? I'm like, we just really like Christmas. And so if people laughed or got it, then, then I was like, okay, you're not Seventh-day Adventist, and we can have a real conversation here. But it was a great way of weeding some of those things out. But even those little pieces of overlap in our history. But as we begin to dig deeper, we see some other profound and amazing things. We think about the passion that this church has for Wayside Cross and Life Spring. And then we go back to the founding of Wayside. And it was men in this church who sat on its first board, who were the first director of Wayside, that were instrumental in the starting and the launching of that ministry, and how many people who'd been a part of Advent had served on its boards over the year. And just the great overlapping of that passion and heart for ministry in Aurora. I was thinking about being a part of a community group this year, and one of the the things we're working on is preparing welcome kits for world relief, an incredible ministry. And it got me thinking about a good decade or so ago when I did a local mission trip here with our youth ministry, and the highlight of that trip was preparing a welcome kit for the world relief family. But not just preparing the kit, but being able to bring it over there to cook a meal and to announce a blessing over this new family that had moved from some other place here and to be able to pronounce a blessing over them in the name of Jesus. And we see this heartbeat that has existed for faithful ministry in this area being brought together over time in such profound and important ways. If you didn't know, Advent was the denomination that originally founded Mendota College, which became Aurora University. And this church, as Aurora Advent, had a deep 
connection with that university to the point that when I first came here with my wife, we did dinner groups. And we were a part of a dinner group. And the only person in that dinner group who did not go to Aurora University worked at Aurora University. That there is this deep and profound overlapping that pastors who were here served as presidents of Aurora University that taught there for so many years. And then, as often happens with institutions that have a deep founding in the faith, they pulled apart. And there's been profound impact over the years. But just to see the cool weaving of God, that once again we have a lead pastor at Redeemer Community Church who's now teaching a class at Aurora University. That because of this merger, I've had the opportunity to be over there and to think about just the great irony of God. My dad, who was the last tenured professor at Aurora University and in the religion department for so many years, who taught a class on world religions that I remember my wife meeting in our home for that class, debating with my father. (laughs) But that now AU has asked Josh to rewrite and prepare a new opportunity to teach that class. The incredible opportunities that we see in the hand of God and how he has worked in our congregations, in their history, but how throughout all of this he has been aligning things and bringing them together for the next chapter. And so it's so important That when we gather together, we don't make the cardinal mistake. Perhaps you've been to a celebration, even by a church or a Christian organization, that it was supposed to be a celebration about what God did, but it really kind of felt like a celebration of what we did, right? Now, I don't know about you, but, but I think we all have that kind of human tendency to make it all about us. Right? There's just that still that fallen clinginess of you know, the crucified flesh that just hangs on, that always wants to make everything about us. And so to make sure that we don't allow that to happen, I want us to take a look this morning at Psalm 100. We had that read by Chris just a few minutes ago, a psalm with the, the script at the top, simply entitled, A Psalm for Giving Thanks. A psalm that comes as this capstone of 95 through 100 of these enthronement psalms, praising God as king. And this psalm just bursts out in praise. So if we can read these words, they provide this great inoculation against elevating ourselves. They remind us that what we need to be is a joyfully thankful people. And so this morning, we're going to look at this idea of joyful thankfulness. And if we want to be joy-filled, thankful people, what do we need? We need to be people of heartfelt conviction. Because joyful thanksgiving flows out of heartfelt conviction. And so what we find in this psalm is a whole lot of what you're supposed to do. In fact, we're going to see there's seven commands in this passage. Seven imperatives that are about what you're supposed to do. And then we also get a little bit of rationale of why you're supposed to do it. Now, as a preacher... I would love to just start with why, right? But it's poetry, so we can't do that, right? This is not the point. We so easily miss it. We can so easily assume we know what joyful thanksgiving is. So what I want to do first is unpack what joyful thanksgiving is through these seven commands. But they're not really commands in the sense of, you better do this. 
I want us to view them as an invitation, as a call to join with the grand and the great people of God, to recognize what we were created to be. We were created to be joy-filled, joyful, thanksgiving worshipers. And so we're going to work through quickly these seven challenges, these seven beckonings of invitation to grow in worship, to grow in joy-filled thanksgiving. And then we'll come back and look at what that heartfelt conviction is we need to have. So we start here with the first one in verse 1. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Shout joyfully. And what's so amazing here is that joy is commanded. That immediately breaks down our understanding of happiness, right? You can't command happiness. Well, you can, but it doesn't really work, right? But, but joy, how can it be commanded? It can be commanded because it isn't dependent upon our circumstances. In fact, it's not dependent upon us at all. It flows out of a recognition that there is a God, and he is unchanging, and he is always worthy of praise. That is what fuels our joy. And then we get to that wonderful line that those of us who aren't singers rejoice in. It's, it's, it's a joyful noise, right? I don't have to sing well. I can make a joyful noise. And, what, and what's so funny is that this is a word that literally means to shout, to cry out. In other contexts, it means to raise an alarm when the enemy is running into your camp. It is a picture of just let it out. It's something that bubbles up to such an extent. It is so important. It just has to find a way to get out. And what is it that's supposed to bubble up within us? What is it supposed to find a way to get out? It's the joy of the Lord. We cannot allow it to be contained within us. And perhaps some of us have a little bit of that baggage from some of the churches we grew up in that we need to just kind of expose and push back against. Because there is this tension, right, we feel in church. Because worship, it's a serious thing. God is holy and he is perfect and he is due reverence. But the flip side of that tension is sometimes we forget that there's supposed to also be joy. See, I grew up in a church where we were kind of the chosen frozen. And, and so, like, you know, like, we're singing about the joy of the Lord and all the, this is the day the Lord has made. You know, like, but, like, nobody seems to actually be glad about it. <laughs> right? And, and so we need to recognize that we feel some of those tensions. I remember a pastor came and, and preached one Sunday, and he made these comments about how, you know, he, he you know, had been told, like, he should just never sing because his voice wasn't that good. And it was kind of like one of those things of getting afterwards. It's like, well, I have to kind of push back against that. Now, there, there is great truth that some of us have not been gifted to lead public singing. I would be one of them, right? That, that is okay, right? My gifts are much betterly used elsewhere. But that if we internalize that and allow that to dictate how we are supposed to worship, we have missed something profound. And so we want to hear it is not optional that joy would bubble out from our lips. And then we get to that last part, all the earth. And we are reminded that what God is so amazing, the only way we can begin to capture his worth is when we all worship him together. When we all bring our praise, there's nothing like that passage in Revelation where people from every tribe and tongue are gathered around the throne worshiping the Lamb. That the Great Commission is not just a hope, it is a promise. 
we have seen the glimpse and the fulfillment that one day it will come. And so we see the intersection of wordship and of mission together, that the goal is we must bring the gospel to all nations. Why? Because that is how much our God is worth. He must be ascribed glory by people from every nation, by every tongue. Only then will that be fulfilled. So joyful thanksgiving means to shout joyfully. I love Habakkuk 2.14. It pictures it this way. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I had to go back and reread that this week because I've always thought, as the waters cover the earth, right? No, it's like as water covers the sea. That's a whole lot of covered. Right? I mean, like, just how profound is that? That is what God's glory will one day be like. He is worthy of that. So shout joyfully. Verse 2. Serve the Lord with gladness. And it's profound. That word serve is literally the word work. It's what Adam does back in the garden. It's the word that also comes to take on service in the temple and the tabernacle by the priests and the Levites. It's the word described of what Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh. We want to what? We want to go serve the Lord in the wilderness. We wish to go and worship. And we need that reminder that serving the Lord, worship is so much bigger than we often make it out to be. We live in this tension in the world, right? It is a wonderful thing that there is now a genre of music called worship. But there's also an inherent danger when worship has become a genre, right? It is that dual edge, that challenging piece. That there, there is a wonderful blessing there, but there's also that opportunity that we can so easily make it just about song. And worship is so much bigger. What does Jesus tell us in Matthew 25? On that day, this is how you will serve me. By taking care of the least of these. Lord, when did we see you and feed you when you were homeless? Clothe you when you were naked. Feed you when you were hungry. Take care of you when you were homeless. The call, that joyful thanksgiving means what? It means caring for the sick. Visiting those who are lonely. Taking care of those who cannot take care of themselves. That the picture here is not only to shout joyfully, God is worthy of that, but we also serve the Lord. We do this. And then he throws in that word gladness. Right? Serve the Lord dutifully because this is what I require. Right? I could do that. But to serve with gladness, to be reminded what I give and I serve others as worship. Why? Because I have been so served and so blessed by what Christ has already done for me. Shout. Serve. Second part of verse 2. Come into his presence with singing. Again, that word come, we so take for granted, don't we? We forget that in the ancient Near East, to the Jewish people gathered around Mount Sinai, come to the mountain. No, thank you. Moses, you go to the mountain. You go and intercede for us. Why? Because God is holy and perfect and terrifying. That there is this profound holiness, and yet we are what? Invited to come into his presence. That we so often take what Christ has done for us for granted. 
that we can draw because of the blood of Christ into the presence of God. Something people once thought impossible, right? We think about that, right? Zechariah. We'll look at those stories around Advent and Christmas time. Once in his life, he got to go in to the inner court and to perform. Once in a life, the high point of a priest's life, he would get to do that, right? The high priest only once a year, trembling, would go into the very presence of God. But yet we, through Christ, now have this unique and profound access to God. And we are told to come what? With singing, right? Singing, man, it's not optional, right? But here, beautiful thing. This isn't the typical Hebrew word for sing. In fact, it's only used three other places in the Old Testament. Twice of them are in Job, and they're just kind of strange, right? We'll just throw that out there. There's one other glimpse in Psalms, and I think it really unpacks what this means for us. Psalm 63, verse 5, it says this, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth, literally, will sing. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. That when I have tasted and experienced, when I have enjoyed God like rich food, then my lips will drip with praise. When I come into God's presence, when I experience his goodness, then my lips will drip with praise. What do we do when we enjoy something? We can't help but share it, right? Social media has only made this all the more crazy. People are posting pictures and reviews like everybody is an expert, right? Because when we enjoy something, we can't help but tell somebody else about it. That's been hardwired into us. We're supposed to enjoy God and to share it. We think of what the catechism says. What what is the chief purpose of man? To glorify God? and drudgery, and enjoy him forever, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And then I think there's this profound thing that happens. We glorify God, we enjoy him, then we glorify him all the more. And in that, we enjoy him all the more. And it builds this beautiful chain together that we are called to do. Joyful thanksgiving continues with the command to know that the Lord is God. Verse 3, know that the Lord is He is God. The central command of the Jewish people, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is one God, and guess what? It's not you. It changes everything, right? This is the command, the centrality of the Old Testament scriptures. Isaiah will declare the Lord, he is God, and he will not share his glory with another. These are the exact Hebrew words that the people utter in 1 Kings 18, there's this incredible story in 1 Kings 18 where Elijah goes up on Mount Carmel and he has this giant smackdown prayer contest with the prophets of Baal and Asherah. And they call out to their God and God does nothing because their God is not real. And then Elijah prays and the fire answers from heaven and the people fall on their faces and they declare, the Lord, Yahweh, he is God. And it changes everything. Reminded of this story, I was reading, there's a story about a young man who decided he was going to climb the Alps. And so he hired two guides, and gradually they made their way to the top of the Alps. One behind him, one before him. Countless hours climbing and working their way to the top. 
And the lead guide says, okay, you're going to go up to the top now. And the man in his excitement just jumps up onto the top and the guide grabs him and pulls him to his knees. Because the man had forgotten the winds up there will rip you right off the mountaintop. And the guide says, you're never safe here except on your knees. Right? We are reminded that there is this holiness to God, this incredible presence. We must recognize he is God and we are not. But hidden in the text here is this profound blessing. This is the Hebrew no, yada. This is Adam knew his wife. This is the language that becomes adopted in the New Testament to talk about Christ as the bridegroom, that there is an intimacy that comes. It is not just knowing and trembling because God is God and I'm not. You better believe he is. But there is also the profound truth of knowing God intimately, that this is the God who is in fact for me that we now have access and can truly know the holy and perfect one. And we'll come back to the second part of verse 3, as that begins the why. That begins the heartfelt conviction that fuels our worship. But first, I want to finish off the commands. Verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. And here again, we find this beautiful language that we so easily take for granted. What are gates designed to do? You're designed to be closed so you can keep people out, right? We recognize when we read the Old Testament law, there are very strict regulations about who is allowed to go where in the temple of God, right? Part of the reason Jesus gets so upset and tips over the tables is not only The fact that they're conducting commerce, it's where they're doing it. It's in the court of the Gentiles. This is the only place the Gentiles can come. This is as close as they are allowed to get. And you have turned it into a place that cannot bring the worship of all nations. And so we get this incredible reminder. Both Isaiah and Revelation declare, the unclean will never enter my gates. And if you can't enter the gates, you have no hope of getting into the court, into the inside. And yet what here, this incredible welcome, enter, come with thanksgiving and praise, come into the place and the presence of God. Again, something that is only possible because of what Christ has done for us. This incredible, beautiful picture of deepening intimacy. And we think about people who came into the courts People who came, what did they come to bring? They came to bring sacrifice. Perfect, unblemished sacrifices. But what here is the sacrifice that is told to be brought? It is give thanks to him. Bless his name. It is not trembling under the cover of blood. It is not going into the Holy of Holies with a Rope tied around our leg and bells on us so that if we fall down because we messed up, they can pull us out and try again. No, what is the sacrifice we bring? It is not the blood of animals. It is the praise of our lips. It is the blessing of the name above all names, the name that allows us to enter into these courts in the first place. heard a great way of kind of simplifying this whole idea. The story is told about an old lady who came to church 
And she prayed the same prayer every week. Oh, Lord, thank you, Jesus. Oh, Lord, thank you, Jesus. And every week she would pray it. And it kind of became a joke to the younger people because they could predict it. And so one day, a young man finally had the courage, and he said, why do you pray the same prayer every week? She said, because it's the only prayer I know. See, I live in a very bad neighborhood, and there are nights when the shots ring out, and I don't know what to pray. So I grab my daughter, and I cover her with my body, and I cry out, oh, Lord. And then in the morning, when we both awake and we are safe, I say, thank you, Jesus. And then I have to go put her on the school bus, and I don't know what she's going to encounter. And so I pray, oh, Lord. And then when she comes home, I pray, thank you, Jesus. And then I get to come to church, and I recognize how faithful God has been. And I can't help but put these two prayers together. Oh, Lord, thank you, Jesus. Oh, Lord, you are the one who continually hears my prayer. You are the one who has shown yourself again and again to be faithful. Oh, Lord, thank you, Jesus. What a succinct way of putting this together. And so the first part of this psalm, we see the unpacking of joyful thanksgiving. If we want to be joy-filled worshipers, these are the things that we must do. But it's not enough to just do them. Because God, the heart matters, right? How do we get that heart? Well, it flows out of an understanding, not only of truth, but of heartfelt conviction of some things. As we were talking at Tuesday text time this week, my wife made the observation how amazing it is that God gives us reasons. Like, he could just say, do it. I'm worthy. That's enough. Right? It is. He is worthy of our worship solely because of who he is and what he's done. But yet, we find the unpacking in the Psalms, the reasons. And the reasons are, when they reach into the depth of our soul, they fuel that joyful thanksgiving. Because then our lips can't help but praise And so I want to break down that heartfelt conviction into two sides. The first one is this, a conviction of whose we are. Whose are we? Going back to verse 3. Know that the Lord, he is God. He's God and I'm not. If that's all there is, it would be enough. But it goes on. It is he who made us. Who are we? We are those who worship our creator. I am the creature But I belong to the Creator, right? We recognize our society has divorced God from creation. And when we divorce God from creation, we divorce Him from our destiny as well, right? We have the American dream of being the self-made man, of pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, of forgetting that every good and great blessing flows down from the Father of lights. That we are only where we are because of the grace and the goodness of God. When we remember we are the creature and he is the creator, it fuels our worship. And then we continue, and we are his. We are his people. This is the language that recognizes what we are, those who worship not only the creator, But we worship because we have been redeemed and adopted into the family of God. 
This is the language that's used to describe the first exodus. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt. You are now my people. But we live on the other side of the cross. Not only do we see God's faithfulness in delivering the Israelite people from slavery, we see his faithfulness and goodness in delivering us from the powers of sin, darkness, death, and damnation. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price. Our value is spoken to by what someone was willing to pay for us. And it's twofold, right? I am so wretched that in order to save me, what did it take? The death of the holy, perfect Son of God. Right? That, that silence is all my pride. That silence is everything. That's what it took to save me. But that's only half the story. The story is that somebody thought I was worth it. And because I was worth I don't know why. I, I cannot fathom what made God think that we were worth it. But he declares it to be true. My value is determined not by what I do, not by what I create, but by whose I am. We are the people who recognize the Creator. We're the ones who rejoice in redemption and adoption. We are also those who know the shepherd's care. Oh, we could spend probably six months unpacking the shepherd language in the Old Testament. But just thinking of Isaiah 40, right? We are the sheep of his pasture. He is the one who picks us up and carries us by his bosom. He is the one who tends the weak and the lame. This is the language Jesus picks up in John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the flock. And I know my sheep by name. And they know my voice. Again, we see the profound intimacy that is there. Whose are we? It changes everything when we recognize it. We quoted the catechism earlier. Another great one. What is my only hope in life and in death? That I am not my own. My only hope is in life and in death that I am not my own. Because if I am my own, if my salvation rests in me and what I have done, I am in trouble. And we live in a world which says, what's the most important thing about you? You can define yourself. You can define everything about you. No, you can't. The most defining thing about you is whose you are. There's this great scene. We can go ahead and throw that picture up. Classic moment from the original Toy Story, right? A toy, its value is determined by what? Who owns it? Because it's a mark of love. It's a mark of ownership. I am not just some toy. I am Andy's, right? You are not just an accident. We live in a world in which an entire generation is being brought up to believe they are an accident, to be thought that they can just be whatever they want to be, that they can determine everything. No. What is most true of you is who you belong to. 
That is what gives us our meaning. That is what gives us our purpose. We turn to the one who made us. We turn to the one who redeemed us. He is the one who shows us our value. That is who we are. If we want to be joy-filled worshipers, if we want joyful thanksgiving to flow from our lips, what? We must recognize with heartfelt conviction whose we are. Because when I remember I am not my own, it changes everything, right? I treat something somebody else has loaned me completely different than what I treat my own stuff, right? There are those moments when if I'm using my own tools, I have no problem throwing them around in a moment of frustration. But if I've borrowed something from somebody else, you believe me, I'm going to set that thing down gently and go find something else to smash, right? We recognize what? Whose it is matters, And when we are so firmly convinced of the profound truth of whose we are, it changes everything. And that flows right into verse 5 and the final rationale given. This is the other conviction that must beat deep within us. And it is, who is God? Not only whose am I, but who is my God? That is the second piece here. We read verse 5. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. The Lord is good. Again, one of those things we so take for granted, don't we? The heathen gods, they were not good. They were capricious and they were fickle, right? But God, he is good. That same word that resonates in Genesis 1, Tov. God's creation is good. The repetition. God is good. And he is the one who does not change. That is what makes everything so profound. God is not only holy and powerful. He is good. I love Psalm 34, verse 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who seeks and finds refuge in him. And I love that picture. How is it that I know, how is it that I taste and see that the Lord is good? It's when I place my refuge in him. Right? There are those moments in life. It's one thing to believe that God is good. It's another thing to cry out and to step into his arms and let him hold me when life falls apart. It's in those moments that what I taste and see the goodness of God. It can't just be an intellectual exercise. I must taste. I must experience the goodness of God because that is what is going to keep me grounded. That is what is going to keep me going. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And again, we're reminded if God was only good, we should be terrified. Because I'm not. But God is also covenant faithfulness. The Hebrew word here, chased. God's covenant, unyielding faithfulness. It is his grace that does not change. That is how I know his promises are good. I love the book of Malachi. It's got some profound images in it. And one of the verses that's always struck me as so amazing is Malachi Oh, now I'm going to lose it here. Let me make sure I got it here. It's Malachi 3.6. I am the Lord, and I do not change. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. If God changed, I'm in trouble. Why? 
because I'm not always faithful. You can wipe my slate clean, but the balance is going to tip again. Right? It is only because God and his word does not change that I am not consumed. It is his faithfulness that carries out from one generation to the next. And the praise builds. God is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. We live in an age of change and adaptation and everything moving faster and faster. And yet we are affirmed in the goodness of God His steadfast love that does not change. His faithfulness is not just to one generation, but to all generations. We saw an incredible picture of that up here earlier, didn't we? Where Margaret at 98 testifying to the faithfulness of God down to Titus, who was baptized just a couple of months ago. The faithfulness of God to all generations. But we find an even crazier picture of that here together. As we were going through leadership-wise, talking through this transition of bringing Advent and Redeemer together, how do we talk about that? Because we need a way to like identify that people have different backgrounds, but we don't want to make too big a deal about it, but it's there, so we need to acknowledge it. And so we kind of use this language of Advent background folk and Redeemer background folk, right? You've heard that used. But here's the crazy thing. All right, It's only been since Easter, and you know what God has done? He now has people who are ready to join into membership in this church, who are not Advent background folks or Redeemer background folks. They're just us. Like, they're all, like, here today and it's like, oh, that's so cool. I didn't know that. Like, right, like we, and then it just becomes what? It just becomes the story of faith. It just becomes another piece of our individual and collective history coming together that we've already seen the incredible testimony to the faithfulness of God to all generations. How amazing. This is part of what we sense God doing as he called our congregations together. Now, as a preacher, I could just stop here because it's, it's all good, right? There's so much praise. But there's that part of my heart as a pastor that says, there's something else that has to be said here. If we're going to be joyfully thankful, if we're going to be people who have this heartfelt conviction, we also have to be real, right? And so as a pastor, I can stand up here and tell you, there are places and times in my life where I would affirm this to be true because it is the word of God and I know it. But I can also tell you it didn't feel real. And so we have to acknowledge that that is what it means to walk the collective life together. That there are those moments where, yes, I affirm this, but God feels anything other than good and faithful right now. And what do we do in those moments? The Psalms remind us to remember. The Psalms continually call us to not only our individual stories, but our collective story. Because there are times in my life where what kept my faith going was not what God was doing in my life. Because I could not see it but I could see the faithfulness of God in somebody else's life. I could see it in the community of faith. And to remind us that as our journeys, as Advent and as Redeemer, I can tell you those secrets behind the curtain, there are moments where you ask those same questions in your collective journey. That I've sat with Tom and Ken and Josh, and they've told the stories about those hard moments of making a decision to leave a denomination, right? 
That's not an easy thing. Those moments when the pastor who's planted your church feels a call elsewhere. How are we going to be able to continue? How are we going to be able to do these things? God, you've called us into West Aurora. Our pastors have bought houses here. And God, I don't know why, but no one will sell us land. Like we have tried. And we have tried. And no one will sell us. Why, God? Why? And at the same time, Advent with this profound, rich history, having gone through worship wars, having gone through the loss of a pastor of 20 plus years, of searching and finally dealing with divisions that had been there for decades, is searching, God, have you abandoned us? God, we've done prayer walks and we've asked you to fill this building with people. God, as he always is, is working in 10,000 ways we cannot see. And so in those moments, collectively, as in those moments individually, we don't know what God is doing. And we can't see it. But that's why today is so important. Because we rejoice in recognizing that the reason God didn't answer all those prayers of Advent, the reason God didn't answer all of those prayers the Redeemer was praying is because he had something better in store. He had a plan and a purpose. He knew that this place needed a gospel witness that could bear into the new generations of the faith. And that other people have already found that and made that their new church home and family apart from all of this. And so we listen to that collective moment when we gather together. We testify to the goodness and the faithfulness of God. We couldn't see it then. Oh, we can see it now. I wish we would learn the lesson, right? But we don't, right? At least I struggle with that, don't we? There's so, like, God, there's going to be something else. How do we grapple with it? Oh, we come together as the community of faith. We lift up the scriptures and we lift up our collective journey to encourage one another. And now we have the profound opportunity to worship joyfully through taking of the Lord's Supper. I'm going to invite those who are going to serve to come forward. And we're reminded of this incredible truth. How is it that we can worship so joyfully? How is our heartfelt conviction able to be lived out? It's all because of what Jesus has done for us. 